0: Head to thenextreel.com slash merch.
1: Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today.
0: And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Andy, it is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since
1: 2011. You are telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes.
0: Let me tell you what I've done this week. I uh, let's see. Uh, h- have you heard of this show, True Detective?
1: I've heard of it. Have you watched it? I've heard of it.
0: <laughs> Spanky, that's a good show.
1: I know it's HBO. I've got to like wait and.
0: Ah, uh, you know what I did? I I signed up for the uh, HBO now. Oh, you should do that. You should to. totally do that. You get a f- uh, the first month is free.
1: I didn't even know that was available yet.
0: It is available. You just download HBO Now, and from it's only iOS right now. It's it's exclusive, I think, for only three months, and then it'll be out for Android. But uh, anyway, so you download it, you sign in, and it, you, it makes you create a little account. But then you have essentially all the HBO Go stuff that you used to get when you would steal your username and password from that cousin that you don't talk to anymore. You know what I'm saying? Mm. Uh, and because uh, we all have that... Cu- that's... <laughs> Same cousin. <laughs> I saw that one cousin in Oklahoma that gives out their password to everybody. Now you don't need to. You can be legit. <laughs> and so I've done that. And I, uh, I'm i telling you, True Detective, I can't get out of my head. There's so many concepts that are jammed in there that are just fascinating. Unreliable narrator. Oh, <laughs> eight o'clock, day one. Uh, you want to talk about tracking shots? I know we're going to be talking about tracking shots tonight. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Episode four. Epic. Epic tracking shot nice. in a riot in the projects it's unbelievable uh what they pull off in this. it was it was amazing i i uh, started that on monday right nice. finished it finished it today
1: excellent excellent well i'm still uh i it's been a busy week i'm i'm really behind on everything i still am two episodes in knee deep into daredevil and i haven't what do you think so farther. far i i mean like i said was last I right? time yeah i mean I, I those two episodes so far i like that's All as right. far as i am And, uh, yeah, the only thing that I've really done is I've finally watched Fast and the Furious 6. Oh, so you're good to go. You're greenlit for the uh, 7. That's right. Well, i got to get my wife to finish it, which hopefully she's going to finish this weekend. And then if we can, we'll sneak off to 7 this weekend as well.
0: Hmm. So you split
1: ways a little bit. But episode, or the third uh, Tokyo Drift, that actually takes place after episode, or episode, after number 6. It
0: does? Yes. So, it technically is what I should watch to get ready for seven.
1: Again, I should rewatch Tokyo Drift. I don't know if you need to. <laughs> <laughs> you can probably watch six, or yeah, watch six, and let's just think about three. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Welcome, everybody. It's The Next Reel. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Howdy there. And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, the final in our 2000... It is the final, right? It is the final. We're not doing any more of it. Okay. The final in our 2015 film noir series with the 1958 noir from Orson Welles. Oh, man, he's a big boy in this movie, Touch of Evil. But before we do that, you should head over to thenextreel.com to learn more about us. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at thenextreel. And if you, too, are a dirty, cheating, lying, stinking man of the law, you should head over to uh, Instagram.com slash The Next Reel and play The Next Reel's Instagram slash hashtag ponyprize, hashtag Guess the Movie Challenge. Andy, how did we do against those dirty cops this week?
1: It was, uh, you know, it was quite a stumper this week. It really had those detectives working overtime trying to uncover the truth of the situation. Dirty,
0: dirty detective.
1: Dirty Detectives. And it took, actually, all the way up into the last image today. Uh, So that's a full seven images in. And uh, good old Glarsid, our friend from another planet, was able to nail it. Uh, I I shouldn't say nail it, but on the seventh image, he he was able to (laughs) nail it. (laughs) And he did get it. It was the, uh, the film that just came out last year, The Skeleton Twins. With the yeah, What's-His-Name-We-Like-So-Much,
0: and What's-Her-Name-Who-Did-The-Dancing-Video. What's-His-Name-And-What's-Her-Name,
1: the people that we like you know, so much.
0: From SNL, it's right? It's
1: Kristen Wiig and Bill Hader. Yeah. And uh, Luke Wilson's in there, too. And uh, yeah, it's uh, I think Craig Johnson directed it. And it looks like a great film. It's one that is on my list of films to see, but I haven't seen it. I love the imagery, though. Some really interesting images in this film and up in Instagram this week. So, Glarset is uh, entered to win the 2015 Pony Prize, and if you want to check out the images, head on over to Instagram.
0: Many props, once again, to the good Stephen Smart.
1: Indeed,
0: indeed. Crushing it this week. But this is back to you this coming week, right? So, it's... it's, uh... Uh, you're right. Cause he's going on, Steven's going on a trip. That's
1: right. I've got a little. So you're at the helm. I got a little week jumping in to do the Instagram this week. So I've got do you know my what you're movie do? all Are picked you, out. I'm ready really? to go. Is it good? Do you feel like, do you feel good? I feel pretty you're good. You're stepping into the ring with the internet. That's right. I know. I've got, I I don't know. I think I'm, I'm, I'm torn. Do I want to really drag it out or do I want to, um, there's some really iconic images. I'm torn if I want to uh, let somebody guess it midway through and then just show iconic images the rest of the week. So we'll see. We'll see how it goes.
0: I think. I think. What do we? When do we feel really good? Four or five? Yeah. Right, like if yeah. somebody gets it around four or five, and then you can ride it on home with some good images. That's what I'm thinking. I guess it's time. Yes. Let's do trailers.
1: M Night Shyamalan's an interesting director. <laughs> <laughs> he's, you know, I really want to like m Night Shyamalan again. I really do because I think he's made some just amazing films. I think he is a storyteller who can tell some really solid stories. I think he's made some incredible, incredible fumbles over the last uh, few uh, years, possibly even decade or more. Uh, it's it, and you know, I don't, I just don't know what's happened. I don't know if he is, um. Just, you know, having doubts as he writes and trying to please people. I I really don't know. I want him to make great films again. I mean, I love the Sixth Sense. I love, I'm one of the people who loves signs. Um, unbreakable. I, I think that he's, he's made some really fascinating stories. I think he kind of got caught up in his own, uh, hype of the twist ending and all of that. And I think that hurt him quite a bit, but, um, I think that jumping into Hollywood projects certainly hasn't helped him out at all um, with the the just abject failure of most of them. Um, So his new film, which is coming out this September, I want to like it. I really want to like it. The trailer looks good and creepy. It's called The Visit, and basically it's about two kids whose grandparents want to uh, have them at their place for a week. And so their single mother sends them over to to, uh, Gram-Grams and Pop-Pops for a week to just hang out with the grandparents and everything. And this is, it really looks like it's kind of a found footage type of film. These kids are very camera savvy. They're filming everything and it just feels very much like they're walking around filming this whole thing. Of course, Grandpa sets a, a, a very key rule that bedtime's at 9.30 and it's best if you don't come out after that.
0: I have not seen your nana this happy in years. (laughs) Bedtime here is 9.30. It's probably best you two shouldn't come out of your room after that. See you in the morning. 9.30? 9.30. It's 10.47. We think there's someone outside the door. What the
1: hell was that? I think Nana's not feeling well. Would you mind getting inside the oven to clean it?
0: Stop, Nana! Stop.
1: <laughs> so creepy. <laughs> um, you know, I don't know. It's it's labeled on IMDb as a comedy horror. I don't know how that bodes uh, for It's
0: Not not usually something that old uh, M Knight usually trucks in.
1: Yeah, same with the camera style. So I'm interested to see what happens here. I really want to see something that works. I, I hope that he can find a way to uh, to pull it off and that it doesn't end up just in the camp of all the rest of the garbage that he's been cranking out. Um, Ed Oxenbold, I mean, I, I enjoyed him quite a bit from Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. I thought he was uh, very, uh, he worked great in that film for me, even though I had some problems with it. Um, the rest of the cast, other than Catherine Hahn, who uh, pops in and out as the uh, um, as the mom, the rest of them aren't familiar to me. Peter McRobbie, Olivia Dej- DeJong, I guess, is yeah. the sister? DeJong. DeJong. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not really sure. I, I want to... Feel that it's going to work, though, and you know, I guess this is just a fingers crossed sort of one. What did you think?
0: I'm gonna, yeah, I'm gonna give it a fingers crossed one, but I, I tell you, I you only just saw the trailer right before we pushed the big red button, and I was laughing out loud like it was, it was a great. Trailer experience, yeah, for me, it was a great trailer experience. It makes me want to know what the gig is, and what's what's the gimmick at the end after nine thirty. Why is Grandma scratching at the walls and trying to bake her children? (laughs) Like, is this a Hansel and Gretel kind of vibe? Like, what what exactly exactly is going on? Because I I was. Really excited about just the experience of dealing with the trailer, and so I I call it a win for for you know maybe this is what he needed to change tone a little bit
1: and really shake it up. So I I'm I'm going to check this one out. Well, it comes out September eleventh, uh, twenty fifteen. So middle of September, right. we'll see then.
0: I've got another one uh, that I'm uh, crossing my fingers on uh, this this week, and you know it's it's hard too because I think trailers generally have been swallowed by the big trailers right so i mean in the last 10 days we've had another avengers another tomorrowland another batman versus superman a jurassic world where they give up all the dinosaurs we've got fantastic four like it has just been a vacuum for other trailers and so it was it was actually hard to um to really dig through the what i, I thought were some more interesting trailers this week and and the one i ended up with is from uh, scott uh, cooper directed and and Scott Cooper came. Uh, I don't know much from Scott Cooper, but he did Crazy Heart, which I think you liked, right? I liked
1: Crazy, crazy Heart, yeah. and then he did Out of the Furnace. Which Out of I the Furnace,
0: missed. which I like. I actually liked Out of the Furnace more than I liked Crazy Heart. So he's got some interesting uh, stuff going on, and he did uh, this film is Black. Mass, the true story of Whitey Bulger, murderer and kingpin. Right. <laughs> uh, in South Boston, uh, played by weirdly Johnny Depp. It starts with a really long conversation between David Harbour and Johnny Depp, uh, where Depp is trying to get him to give up a family secret uh, recipe. What did you marinate this
1: steak in? Because it's out of this world. You're killing me with it. What's the, what's the, what's the, fam- what's the family secret recipe? It's, gr- it's ground garlic, and a little bit
0: of soy. No. You said to me, this is a family secret. And you gave it up to me, boom. Just like that. It lets us see Johnny Depp's really strange hair uh, treatment in this film. Uh, some of the tone, which I think is more interesting at this point than Jack Sparrow. Um, I'm, I'm interested in it. The big hidden sort of big gun for me is Benedict Cumberbatch, who's in this film as Bill Bulger, the, um, I assume, is the brother uh, who is the, uh, the, he's the state senator at the time of, of Whitey Bulger. And so I, I'm just fascinated by how these guys come together and do this film. I'm more, I think, looking forward to the second trailer where we get to see maybe a little bit more of Benedict Cumberbatch because at this point he's more of a draw than than Johnny Depp is for me. Um, uh, but it's a, it looks like an interesting uh, character piece for him and and uh, it was You know, it was a good watch.
1: Yeah, I'm in. I think it looks really interesting. I had no idea what the trailer was when I first clicked it to watch it. And I, you know, the way that his contacts looked... (laughs) like you mentioned his hair i thought his eyes were so strange looking i thought i was watching like a trailer for a horror movie or something uh oh, because he looked like he was a possessed demon or something i couldn't quite figure it out and then as the trailer went on i realized what it was but uh very quite quickly but initially when i saw those eyes i'm like okay he must be a, like a an otherworldly being or something um, his eyes just they're very weird um but i agree incredible cast i mean aside from uh, Depp and Cumberbatch, Joel Edgerton, Judo Temple, Corey Stahl, Kevin Bacon, Ad, Adam Scott, Peter Sarsgaard. It's got really an incredible cast. And it seems like one of those projects where everything could come together. And I mean, I think Johnny Depp is a fantastic actor. He doesn't he doesn't show it all the time. Um, but I totally agree. Yeah, I, I think that he can certainly bring it. And I am looking forward to seeing him bring it here.
0: I, I really, I mean, I'm so glad you said that because I totally agree. I think, I, I just think he's had kind of a string of weird sort of stunt cast roles that haven't played out very well. And I'm tired of the Pirates of
1: the Caribbean. Or um, Mordecai.
0: <laughs> oh my goodness. What a disaster that was. I didn't see that one, but. Yeah, it's, it was a disaster. All right. So that's it. And it's uh, it comes out September 18th, 2015. Uh,
1: so uh,
0: a little nothing like a little fall mafia there you Family go mafia fun
1: yeah it'll bring back a little hint of the uh the donnie brasco
0: andy i've got this ticking noise no really it's this this ticking noise inside my head
1: all right all right move along
0: Keith. starring this outstanding cast charlton heston janet lee
1: i could love being corny if my husband will only cooperate
0: <laughs> orson wells co-starring joseph Kalea. Akim Tamirov, with guest stars Marlena Dietrich, Zsa, Zsa Gabor. What are you trying to do? I'm trying to strap you in the electric chair, boy. Only the offbeat, original, creative powers of Orson Welles could bring you so suspenseful, so gripping,
1: so different a drama of love threatened by vengeance.
0: Mike may be spoiling some of your... F- Mike? My husband, yeah. And if you're trying to scare me into calling him off, let me tell you something, Mr. Grandy. I may be scared, but he won't be. Of a struggle between titans, you framed that boy. Framed him. <laughs> of a manhunt like nothing you've ever experienced. Now, oh, god Now, I'm a husband. What did you do with her? Where is my wife? My wife. Touch of Evil, 1958, from Orson Welles. Screenplay by Orson Welles, uh, as adapted uh, by Wit Masterson. He wrote the book. Uh, We've got some, you know, I I think one of the things that you you might say about uh, Touch of Evil is that it was a film that was made with, no controversy where everybody really liked one another and it was made simply from beginning to end.
1: Just like all of Orson welles 's films.
0: Just like every <laughs> single one of Orson Welles' films. And uh, that would be true if it were not in this universe because <laughs> this was a mess. It was a hot mess. Oh, yes. Uh, and so we also had some contributing re- uh, rewrites and reshoots from Franklin Cohen and Paul Monash uh, as they, uh, well, you're going to have to unravel all of the different, uh, the different versions and changes and, and, um, just, uh, you know, where do you want to start? Cause, uh, you know, which version did you watch both versions of it? The, the two that are available? Well,
1: there's actually three available. Oh, there are three available. And I, I watched two of them. Um, and actually Paul Monash, I believe wrote the original, uh, adaptation of Whit Masterson's novel, Before Orson Welles came on as director and then uh, proceeded to rewrite it at that point. And then Franklin Cohen came in and rewrote the – or wrote the new scenes that were added. Yeah, this was a a bit of a a mess. It's – I mean, uh, you know, Orson Welles, I think he was one of those directors who really knew how to put an incredible story together. I think that he just had a hard time um, working in the Hollywood system and making the Hollywood system work for him. And I think you know I I listened to a lot of commentaries, a lot of people talking about this, and and read some stories about what went on. And nobody really—it it's hard to pin blame on Universal. It's hard to pin blame on Orson Welles. I think everybody shares a little bit of the blame. What it seems to have happened is Orson Welles directed the film. Universal was very happy with everything going along. They really thought Orson Welles was doing a great job. And um, he came in on time. And I don't know if it was under budget or right on budget. But he came in without going over budget. And then he, um, he cut the film. And my understanding is then he went off to Mexico to start working on his next project, which was, to, which was going to be Don Quixote. And Universal was, I guess, a little miffed that he left like that because they wanted to continue doing some tweaks in the edit and stuff. And so somebody at Universal decided, well, we don't want to – he doesn't want to work on it anymore. So they that's when they brought Franklin Cohen in to do some rewrites – For some new scenes. They they re-edited it. They cut some stuff out that they didn't like. The cut that Orson Welles made of this film. Doesn't exist anymore. Nobody really has it. Um, It's essentially lost in time. The the re-edited version. um, Is the version that. uh, Ostensibly is the one that was released in 1958. It's about 95 minutes or so. Orson Welles did see it. And when he saw it, he wrote a fifty-eight page memo to Universal. That's a fascinating read. I've made it through about half of it. Um, just lots of very detailed notes that he gives, just scene by scene, recounting things that are uh that need to be reworked, essentially. And Universal listened to some of his notes before they they did another pass at it and then released it. Um and when they released it, they released it as a B picture. It was the bottom bill to a Hedy Lamar picture. And so they hardly even pushed it. And this was essentially an A-list film. I mean, it had an A-list cast, A-list crew, A-list budget. Everything about it was A-list. But Universal just didn't get it, I guess, once the film was all done. And so they just demoted it to B-level and didn't push it at all. And so it was just kind of lost in the annals of history until, I think in the 70s, a, a professor at one of the film schools in California requested a copy of it from their library to watch it or to show to their class and found a 108 minute version, which all of a sudden everyone was convinced was the long lost uh, Orson Wells version. It was, it didn't take long for people to realize it wasn't, it It was kind of a mishmash of a few different cuts, a few different extra things added, but it gave some new footage. And so it excited people. And then finally in 98, um, some, uh, people came together, um, and were able to take this. They got Universal to agree to fund this, and they basically uh, got all the footage that they could find and assembled an extended cut of the film that is based on the 58-page memo that Orson Welles wrote, along with all the other notes that he had been giving to Universal at the time. So there's no such thing as a director's cut. This extended cut is much closer to the vision that Orson Welles wanted, but um, and and it is a better version, I think. I mean, the 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 shorter version, one could argue, is definitely more taut, and uh, it does feel like it speeds along much quicker. But um, this the longer version really just it, the storytelling is much stronger. The design of the the flow, as he put it together, um, works so well. And it's not a director's cut, but it sure feels like um, Orson Welles did have his hand in making it a stronger film. Um,
0: we should say that the, you know, the person who spearheaded this final cut was Walter Murch, the, who I believe we've talked about somehow or another, right? Um, um, I can't remember we if we did. Or not. I'm, I'm not sure, but he's been around for uh, for some some time. Um uh, And, uh, you know, working on Apocalypse Now and the Godfather films. And I mean, he's just he's he's been around for a long time.
1: You know, we should also give huge kudos aside from Walter Murch, who, yes, played an incredible part as the editor of 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 cutting this new version but uh, Rick Rick Schmidlin is the producer who actually got the whole thing off the ground and really was the driving force in making it happen. I don't think it would have happened without him. There's it's amazing the the changes. And even just I I after I watched both of them, I then I I just rewatched the first 10 minutes again just to see kind of a comparison of how much really changes in the first 10 minutes. The first obvious change is the is just the opening shot. I mean, it starts with an incredible uh single take that just this long tracking shot as this bomb you get a close-up of a bomb um, that is you know the timer is set to about three and a half minutes it's put in the trunk of a car and then we pull out as the driver uh, of the car and and his passenger drive down the road and it all takes place in this border town we end up meeting our uh, protagonist and his wife uh, charlton heston and janet lee and then um, we follow it all the way across the border and then the car explodes. It's an incredible uh, tour de force of, of cinematic daring do, I guess you could call it. It's just it's beautiful, and you saw it in its unadulterated glory in the 1958 version. Universal put all of the film's credits over it, so you you get uh, you know you get distracted by this additional layer on top of it. You don't get to see the full shot because there's constantly credits popping up all the way through. And so right away, that's a huge, a huge difference. Now I will say something that I do actually like is I love Henry Mancini's theme, which does play over the whole opening in the original cut, and they pull that out and they they drop it in here and there um, as kind of some underscore in the in the uh, extended cut. But what Orson Welles really wanted to do is not have score so much throughout the film, but have music from passing radios um, playing. Uh, and just to kind of build this this um, sound world of the film, which I think is amazing to hear. So as we're driving, we hear the radio of the car as it's playing some kind of American uh, dance music. And then we go past a cabaret, like a, a Mexican cabaret, and we hear their music. And it's this amalgam of all these different musics uh, that kind of keep coming up and it gives us a much better sense of the world and i really love this sound mix as much as i love that theme
0: well that's uh, that was the thing that really sort of broke my heart is i do i really adore uh this score and, and i think henry, henry mancini is you know one of my very favorites at the same time um you can just feel how Wellesian it is without the the mancini score yeah. in there i mean just the using ambient sound is or or this kind of hodgepodge of of you know natural sound is such an Orson Welles vibe I just can feel his hands on it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And then the editing, it uh there's a lot more um intercutting that happens once once Susie, uh Janet Lee's character um kind of separates from uh Mike's character as as the he starts dealing with this investigation and she goes back to the hotel. There's a whole um a, added layer of uh of intercutting going on as opposed to much longer takes just kind of you know the way that they re-edited it was very uh much you get the investigation at the car you get Susie at the hotel it's just in chunks the way that it's re-edited it's really jumping back and forth so you're getting both worlds the whole time and it just it makes you really get a sense of all the stories going on at the same time and how everything kind of ties together in in the re edit. In the re edit,
0: I so what is it about the uh, the other the earlier film, the original cut that that you feel is um, is more taut? And are you saying that as a good thing or a or a negative thing?
1: No, I mean it is it is a good thing. I mean the there are story problems that pop up in the original film um, when you're uh, when you're really paying attention to the different characters and and why is this character here when it, it doesn't make any sense. Um, but it is only like ninety-five minutes. It just moves quickly, and and it does have an energy as it goes through. It just it feels very, uh, it just feels tight. It just doesn't it it doesn't have as much uh, focus on some of the characters, so you don't get as much of the character development. Which I, I that's why I still prefer the extended cut. But sure. it, it, but if you really want to just have a you know a, a taut story and you just kind of want to burn through it, I mean the the original, I mean. It's a lesser film but I still think it's a great film. I mean, I saw that um for years for you know for starting in film school whenever it was first shown to me all the way up until the the this re-edited version was released in 98. That was the only version I knew and I thought it was great. I mean, It it did have some confusing story elements, but at the same time, I felt I could feel the hands of a master filmmaker at work, and I still loved it.
0: It feels um, it feels more like a B movie, only in comparison to the re edit. Yes, you know, it it feels like it moves fast enough that we're just we're just jamming some plot points down your throat, right? A little bit, and and so I'm I'm with you, but um, but I think you're right. It's a it is just a stunningly beautiful film. Even with some weird cultural things that I can't quite wrap my head around, this whole idea of Charlton Heston uh, playing a Mexican uh, attorney is
1: tough. It is tough. Um, I will say, um, I, and not in a way to defend it, because, you know, I'm always for casting. If you're going to you know, have a story with a Mexican character, hire a Mexican to play them. Um it's you know uh, conversely as an actor uh, not that i am an actor but but in the land of actors i totally understand an actor wanting to kind of you know play something different and try it out i can see that that being said um i i still prefer Casting somebody who is actually the correct uh, ethnicity for a role
0: that was not a that was not as popular of a of a thing.
1: No, and and in, in the fifties, so have, I mean, I get it. It wouldn't have gotten off the ground if Charlton no. Heston uh, did not sign on. That's the thing is, like, there would not be a touch of evil if Charlton Heston didn't sign on to be a part of it. And so,
0: now, what is the what is the story as you understand it of Orson Welles getting involved? My understanding is that it was uh, very much Charlton Heston who said, uh, you know, I hear. Uh, Orson Welles is involved, uh, acting in it, I don't want to, I think I don't want to do it unless he directs too.
1: Yeah. I I mean, that's essentially what the story is that Charlton Heston, uh, you know, he always spins is that um, he thought Orson Welles would make a great director for it and and basically got him the job for it. And I, you know, I I tend to believe him. I don't see why uh, that wouldn't be the case. And so, I it I think it's great. I think Orson Welles is a uh it was uh, the right person to bring on the job for it and make it into something. Uh I haven't read the book, but I think that this film just works so well that um you know, I I don't know. I I feel like it's really just a above the level of kind of a B uh yeah. cop thriller. Yeah.
0: I- that's also my understanding about the book that the book was pulp and that that uh, you know bringing Orson Wells in actually does more greater justice to the source material than it likely deserves uh, but i'm I'm with you I've not uh, read badge the, of evil uh, book badge of evil yeah there's uh, Orson Wells I you know uh, we talked about his his touch and and just his sense of ambiance in the opening credits but man his this is his hands are all over this film from just lighting and camera. I mean, it, it is, it just, it reeks of Orson Welles. I think the camera is either six inches away from one of the actor's faces, or it's on the floor. Yeah. Pretty much throughout the entire film.
1: Yeah, he loves seeing ceilings. And, yes. Uh, and I will say, as brilliant as that opening shot is, there is another shot at starting at about 36 minutes and uh, 20 seconds in that runs uh all the way through 50 minutes and 46 seconds with a couple uh a couple cuts into it where they where we follow a character out of the scene but it's essentially they shot it as one long take and it is an incredible shot it's it's
0: Wait a minute you 36 minutes
1: 3620 it's the all shot all the way through it starts to how long to 50 46 it's the shot when they go into uh to arrest uh arrest the uh um, what's his name? I'm blanking on the character's name right now. Yeah, the kid. Yeah, they go in to arrest the kid who uh that um they think has actually Sanchez. They think has actually planted this bomb. They go over to his his apartment um and they go in there to um uh, to talk with him and look for the dynamite and mm-hmm. that scene, everything in that house was shot as one single take. And it was actually the very first day of shooting. And it was supposed to be, I guess, three days of shooting the way that it was built on the production schedule. And Orson Welles, um, just to kind of uh, prove a point to the studio, because, I mean, the, the he had always had trouble in the studio system. And so the studio, even though they were agreed to have him direct it, they were still nervous about him directing it. And so, he went and he rehearsed with his actors all day long. The studio is getting nervous because they still hadn't gotten a shot off by um, after lunch other than a quick a couple little like inserts. And it wasn't until like 530 or 630 at night that they finally started shooting, and they only shot for about an hour and 15 minutes because they shot the whole thing in one take, and they did a number of takes of it. But once they got it, they finished it, and Orson Welles at the end of it was like, okay, that's a wrap. We're now three days ahead of schedule.
0: <laughs> I, I think I know what you're talking about, but that scene, because when they come out, I think because the version I'm looking at right now that I happen to have on my iPad is, is, the, um, is the original and they butcher it.
1: Well, and, and they do cut. Like when, when Vargas leaves the room to go across the street to make the phone call from the blind lady's shop, we, mm-hmm. we do step away from that several times. So, I mean, you've got it from about 36.20 to 41.39, and then you come back into it at 42.21 to 43.14, and then you're back at 45.12 to 50.46. So, But there are like several good like, uh, you know, two to five minute chunks in there.
0: Yeah, but see that's what I'm saying. Like we're we're out in the car and driving away at 43 in the recut. Like it's it's by by 50 we're well into the hotel. Yeah. So, it that's a
1: sad. Right. Kind of and, and so but. watching it in the in this in this version, you just get this incredible sense. And it's one of those things where you don't even notice that it's like a single shot because yeah. you're so wrapped up in the story, but it's it's really impressive. And the way that he moves the... Not, the the characters in the frame it it becomes this dance because he's got characters coming for, into the foreground and moving into the background the cameras moving you've got uh, the way that the the lights are hitting different people you've got the uh, reflections happening and and as you know Vargas goes into the bathroom you've got all those different movements it's an incredible dance that he does and this is the best example of it but he really is using it all through the film
0: he really is and I think it's you know I'm watch- as I'm watching the sequence right now you can see when you're paying close attention to it you can see when the lighting changes you know as the characters as their triangles you know of their heads uh, kind of move throughout the frame you can see lights come on and off that you don't really notice if you're just letting it sort of wash over you but man you're right as they move move into the bathroom as they move as they knock over the box as he comes back out is he's uh it's a it is a fantastic sequence and all of it is shot from sort of chest level or below. Mm-hmm. And man, he plays great great use of shadows. The shadow becomes a character on screen. It becomes another element in this this sort of leading lines of actors as they lead back toward the back wall of the of the frame in this really long shot. It's just
1: beautiful. And he knows how to hold on certain things. Like I love how when the dynamite is found, we're holding on Vargas's face. And Mm -hmm. as as kind of as he's getting to react to this discovery and he's finding out that the dynamite was found in this box, which he had knocked over earlier and knew that it was empty. And so the whole thing is on his face. And so you get that great reaction on Heston's face, which I think is just fantastic.
0: That patience of that sequence when you watch him, he, you know, he doesn't just act surprised. He acts like aggressively surprised over like a minute and a half. Right. It's it's wonderful to watch that look grow on his face, that intensity kind of evolve on his face. It's really great. Yeah. We could go shot by shot, but I'm I love <laughs> the uh, final sort of climax of the of the film as well, which feels particularly uh wellsian. Oh yeah. The the way they he orchestrates the chase.
1: Yeah. It's uh, it's a beautiful shot. It's beautifully Constructed the way the movements happen, I love how the the arm the 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 uh, boom arm is kind of hanging out over the bridge, looking back at it. so you can see uh, you can see um, Quinlan and Menzies walking across the bridge. On the top and then down on the bottom, you can see Vargas wading through the water underneath with the receiver as he's tracking them. Just, it's, it's beautifully constructed. I mean, this is a filmmaker who really knew how to place the camera and just in really interesting ways and get information uh, across without having to hit us over the head with it.
0: My favorite sequence is when they hit the bridge. They're having this conversation. It's very intense and as Wells discovers the echo, uh, they look he He looks out over the bridge and we're we're they're lit sort of by a reverse side light just a like a key light so all you see is there is this bright outline of them from the left, and the both of their bodies on the right just blend into the black of of the sky and the scene behind them and it is just it's it's like it's a terrifying scene of awareness when he realizes that i mean it, because he's a giant brute of a man orson wells he's a terrifying person on screen and he's he's the bad guy uh and i you know we've seen him we should talk about his his scene of uh, i i think the the most intense scene uh, in the film in the uh, in the hotel uh but in this case he's you know we we see him as you know the evil element in this film and and to to see his shape his his brawn on screen looks so offended uh, is, makes for an incredibly powerful visual.
1: Yeah, he is uh, right from the moment we meet him when he steps out of, the, uh, out of the police car at the beginning. He is an overwhelming figure that is intimidating and uh, feels like he's uh, coming down on us the whole time.
0: And what's interesting about that is the way they make him he is so such has such a dramatic physical presence, but they also give him this weakness right they give him this this bum leg, so he is this he manages to carry off such a great sense of power and yet he can hardly walk mm-hmm. uh, and and so that puts him in an interesting place right it's like he's always using his physical presence. Uh, aggressively like he's always backed into a corner in some respects and that's where a lot of his power comes from because people don't know how he's going to react and it turns out he uses that power to influence the law by you know planting evidence to make cases go his way uh but uh but you know we don't we don't see that immediately and so um you know it's an interesting display of power i think
1: and it also becomes his downfall uh because of the cane that he has to walk around with that's what he leaves behind after he kills uh after he kills uncle grandy
0: right right that that's a good point gives him and way. that was that's a sequence that um that we should we should probably talk about your uh, what do you think about the uh the assassination of uncle grandy
1: uh, i love it i it's horrifying i think that the sound design in that sequence is incredibly strong the uh the way that the music is coming in and out along with kind of them fumbling around in this uh hotel room, the glass smashing you've got the the shots of uh of Susan laying there on the bed in kind of the drugged state as she's kind of tossing around, and you've got this just horrifying uh strangulation that happens there. And uh, culminating in one of the most frightening shots <laughs> that I've ever seen. When C- certainly the most
0: frightening in the series we've discussed.
1: Yes, when Susan wakes up and sees the uh, the dead face of uh, Grandy over her head.
0: Ooh. The dead Ooh. face surrounding giant dead eyeballs.
1: Yes, and and, and, and his tongue grief. dangling out. Uh, it, it's
0: it is. Uh, shiver. It's so bad. It is so bad. And, uh, and, and that, um, yeah, well, it makes an impact.
1: It really does. It's pretty terrifying. And, and so, yeah, it's, it's a brilliant, a brilliant sequence.
0: Um, it is another one too that I think highlights a use of light, and um, uh, you know he he does a good job, I think, <laughs> a brilliant job of of giving us the light sources in the in the room, and and he does this through you know first of all letting us pass the sort of backlight from the room on the fr- side of the on the front side of the street, but as he as we we get this really constrained chase between uh, Uncle Grandy and and um, Wells, he's chasing him around the room, he's always chasing him from a from a, a high angle. And and being uh, Grandy's being chased from a low angle, and it just ends up being a really um, intense uh, run around a very small space. Uh, lots of being backed into a corner, which is a, uh, I, I think again it's it's a great display of the power differential between the two men. And and Uncle Grandy is the he runs the the mafia in this town while his brother is. Under grand jury indictment, and so yeah, uh, you know it's a it it makes for a, a testament to the their political relationship too, uh, I think, which is which is really strong. But as they break the the light or break the window on the rear uh, of the room, and we see Wells grab him as he's trying to 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 escape and and scream for his uh, you know well-being before he strangled us you know we get a sense of where the light and shadows are coming from and it it creates such an incredibly uh, just withering atmosphere in this room it's certainly the most noir of the noir that we've talked about for me
1: that scene i would also throw in there the uh, uh i don't know if it's it, i mean i guess you can call it a rape scene even though it doesn't sound like they really ended up yeah. raping susan but that because of the A's thing, board. Yeah. Well. Uh, well. Yeah. It's and also just the strange. I don't know if I ever fully understand Grandy's design. <laughs> it's, it's like <laughs> the strangest way to try to get Vargas to back off of his brother. I Guess know, what it is? Let's kidnap his wife. Make make her think that she's been raped. Uh, we're going to get her arrested on a drug charge, and uh, we'll use that against against Mike to free uh Grandy's brother or get him off of the it, <laughs> grand indictment
0: no sense it's, at
1: all it's a very strange way of going about it but when the gang of of uh the young hoodlums along with their lady friends uh break into the hotel room where Susan is staying and uh you just you know grab her hold her legs and it's just it's horrifying just being in that position i think is just a what a terrifying uh, place especially oh. especially in you know the the pre-psycho hotel in the middle of nowhere
0: <laughs> it's like... with, with the night manager uh played by dennis weaver is one of the i think the one of the most entertaining characters on screen in this film he
1: is he's definitely sort of the sort of character who is meant to be a night manager
0: <laughs> <laughs> he absolutely is uh i you know i think you're right that sequence is is just terrifying um uh, you know, mostly because they do such a great job of again capturing her perspective, shooting down onto her and shooting way, way up onto the the thugs and their girlfriends who are the worst. Uh, girlfriends are supposed to like be the positive influence. They're supposed to meet her and soften the the gang members. The men I saw West Side Story. <laughs> I guess that didn't really hold true
1: all the way around. But
0: still, that when she turns around and says, "I want to watch," yeah. it's, it's just horrible.
1: Well, and you it's, know what's funny is knowing who that is. That's Mercedes McCambridge who is, uh, we've talked about her on the show before. She is the voice of Regan when she's possessed by the demon Pazuzu in The Exorcist.
0: That's right. That's so. right. I want to watch takes on so <laughs> much new meaning. <laughs> oh, that's pretty good.
1: It is pretty funny.
0: Uh, anybody else that, uh, well, anything else you want to talk about with regard to uh, uh, the good Mr. Wells? I feel like we've...
1: Uh, You know, I I hammered on him a little bit. Yeah, but I I think that, again, he just he does know how to construct a film. I mean, he started in, you know, theater and in radio and in film. He always knew how to put something together. Going from the beautiful tracking shot that we have at the start that we already talked about. Immediately, you get this car exploding and then you cut into handheld camera work, which is brilliant. You've got that uh, fantastic uh, shot when. When Grandy finally twists Quinlan's arm enough to get him to start drinking, and you have the two of them in the bar, as uh, as Grandy gives him some more uh, drink, and then you've got this wonderful over—it's almost like an over—not quite overhead shot, but it's it's definitely a shot, you know, looking down on Quinlan, and it's on an arm, and then it just kind of lifts up, and you you Quinlan just kind of drops and and diminishes into the shot, almost like he's descending into hell. Just uh, you know, and then the amazing audio work that he does throughout. I think he really knew how to construct a film in an incredible way, and uh, I mean, he truly was a master. And it's a shame that this was his last studio film.
0: Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, certainly. Um, it goes from from here. We I, I don't want to diminish Charlton Heston's role, but for me, in this film, he's a utility player. He's the guy who just sort of runs back and forth between the stories that I'm most interested in.
1: Um, I actually, I like Charlton Heston in this and yes, it's, it's awkward with him kind of, uh, playing a Mexican, but, um, you know, I don't know. I, I guess maybe it's because I don't, I don't give a lot of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, credit to him as an actor. I think so much of his, his performances are him as Charlton Heston playing this role.
0: Yeah. Just overblown. Yeah. He always comes
1: across as just a big a big screen Hollywood actor. And sometimes that can be very entertaining to watch. I think he does a great job here uh, in this film. Yeah. I I guess there's not probably a lot to talk about in his role as Mike Vargas, but I, 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 you're right. I don't want to diminish him by saying that I, you know, I just, but I do, I, I do still enjoy watching him in, in all of his stuff.
0: Yeah. I, he's, he is the guy that I think the most interesting stuff is is going on around in this film, and and uh, you know we've from Orson Welles, you know on the other end of that spectrum, it's really Janet Leigh uh, as you know Heston's wife, uh, Susan Vargas, and she we've already mentioned she's the one who from the very beginning of the film she is they they make off with her, and they take her and and uh, use her, attempt to use her as a pawn. In uh, this uh, plan to get Heston or or to get his the uh, Grandy's Uncle Grandy's brother released from prison, Mm -hmm. and um, her story is so interesting because first of all, she actually she reads like a strong character, right? right? I mean, she comes off as a strong character, and it's interesting to see how she approaches, you know, these hoods as they are kind of always on top of her. Uh, whether it's in the beginning where they're really just kind of slinking around, always sort of watching and skulking in the shadows to when they actively, you know, break into or first taunt her at the hotel by turning on the music and trying to drive her crazy and then get the master key to actually uh, go into the room and, and start their, um, their you know, machinations on her. Yeah. It is it is just such a, a a horrifying story to watch her go through. And I think she was just great in it.
1: Yeah, she's fantastic. Uh, she's beautiful. She's great. I mean, she's just very easy on the eyes. She's just a, a beautiful actress. But she just is so uh, so good in this role. And I think she's so strong. And I think my favorite scene is watching her initial confrontation with Grandy and just the way that she doesn't hold back when she's talking with him. Um, she's really, uh, she knows how to stand up for herself. I mean, she's a, she's, I guess you could say she's a policeman's wife. Um, albeit for a very short period of time, this is their honeymoon after all, hanging out in the border town. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) Strangest honeymoon. But, um, but I think that uh, she does know how to hold her own, and she's great in this. But you know, when she is trapped in that scene, it's it is terrifying, and you really feel for her because she does come across as such a strong character. It makes it makes you feel for her that much more.
0: Yeah, I think so. Um, from there, who else do we have that we really need to talk about? Charlton, Janet, Orson. Uh, who else is on your list? Well, I.
1: Joseph Kalea, I think is uh, great as Menzies in this. And I think what makes him great is he is the change character for us in this film. He is the character that we watch transition over the course of the film because uh, neither Vargas nor Quinlan really change they kind of go on their trajectory but it's through this story that Kalea who's been a huge defender of Quinlan Quinlan taught him everything he knows Quinlan as he says it's an incredibly poignant conversation at the end when he says uh you know when uh, uh Vargas is, uh, they're they're basically working to set up Quinlan by planting this uh this uh microphone on Kalea and uh, Quinlis tell or I mean, uh, Vargas tells him, he's like, "Come on, you're you're a you're a good cop." And and Kalea and says, "Yeah," and you know who made me that way? It was Hank. Yeah. And it's it it breaks your heart because this is that realization where the man who taught me to be a good cop is not a good cop, and here I am bringing him down. And, but, it, but it's an incredible transition for this character, and I love seeing this transition because he starts from being Quinlan's right-hand man to being this guy who is defending him when evidence is popping up to finally having to reveal that cane when he found it at the scene of the crime and knowing that it's the right thing to do even though it means that he's going to have to bring his boss down to finally really the, uh, to acting, acting uh, to stop Quinlan. It's powerful.
0: It is really powerful. Yeah, he's he's. It's interesting. It makes me wonder. You know how well stylistically it fits as a as a noir, but how well does it fit as a noir to you? Who's the femme fatale, for example?
1: Well, this is an interesting uh, entry into the world of noir, and largely people call this kind of the end of what is you know kind of the official
0: the official generation.
1: Yeah, you know from. 44 to 58 is kind of, you know, the window of time where they mostly say this is most of the noirs. It still has those dark elements, but you can see by now a lot of the noir elements aren't necessarily in it anymore. There really isn't a femme fatale in this. Uh there are dark characters though. You've got you've got uh, you know, Quinlan and Grandy and you've got a lot of this just kind of the dark psychological stuff happening. And you don't you don't have a protagonist who's really descending into this level, uh, this dark of dark places because of poor choices. Um, Quinlan, in a sense, is kind of that character, even though he's the antagonist of the film. Um, but in that sense, it does make it a very interesting film when you look at it from Quinlan, Quinlan's perspective, and you see this is the fall of this man who, um, while right. Uh, you know in the end, it is revealed to us that this guy that he 's trying to pin this crime on did confess and did actually do it um, Quinlan went about getting to the truth the wrong way and so by by feeling the need to lie to get what he what, to get to the bottom of it um he um you know he he didn't didn't didn 't follow the truth and it, that brings him down really.
0: It's the story of a man who's you know who's being forced out of the off the squad by a plucky upstart from another country, uh, it, you know. But uh, on the other hand, you know we do have a a very clear heroic journey here. I mean, you you have um, the hero who's trying to do good. There is no sense at any point. Well, I I guess I should I, I should. There, there I, I should say that another way there is a sense at another point that he could do that heston's character could do dark things but only when he is pushed to do so when his wife is you know he finds out what's going on with his wife you know he said i'm a i'm a, a husband now um you know and he is screaming where is my wife as he's totally overturning a bar i didn't know bars could be overturned quite so easily uh, but he literally turns it over, uh, and uh, and and so we see he could do these things. But really, the demonstration of his in- integrity is that he is the good. He is the good who's going to do what needs to be done right, in order to take this bad guy down. Um, he doesn't use he he uses the technology, the tape, and the the radio transmitter, all the technology available to him within his view of the law. Um, and so that's that's not a that's not a noir trait, and I can I can totally see this as this is the last of the noir.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, even though uh, you know I mean, we've talked about kind of neo noir and stuff. I mean, there are films that continue even from that point on, all the right. way through today that still have um, elements of of noir. So yeah, it's not yeah. like it's ever died.
0: It's died. It's dead <laughs> to me. It's dead to me. Let's talk about Jaja. Uh,
1: Zsa and Marlena. Yeah. Zsa was the girlfriend of Albert Zugsmith, the producer of the film. And that's how she got her bit part. <laughs> and Marlena was good friends with Orson and she came on to, uh, to do her bit. Uh, he asked her to do this bit of Tana. I love Marlena in this. There's something about her performance on screen. Um, every time I see her on screen that just has this weight. And I just love watching Marlena perform. Um, the studio had no idea. He didn't tell her, tell the studio that she was going to be in the film. She was just doing it as a favor and was doing it all for free. The, and it, you know, the idea was that she wasn't going to be credited and all that. But when they saw that she was in it, they quickly created a contract and wanted to pay her because they wanted to plug her name in it. And so okay,
0: put her on, put her on the poster.
1: Exactly, exactly. Which is interesting because Joseph Cotton, who also pops up, and he's one of uh, Orson Welles' old, old timers from way back in the in the. You know theater days and Citizen Kane and everything. He pops up as the coroner um, but uh, but doesn't get credited.
0: Anybody else stick out to you? any other surprise uh, performances that, uh, that have, have folks that you know we're going to talk about later?
1: Um, not really, but I will say I, I do like Akim Tamaroff as as Grandy and Valentin de Vargas as Pancho. I think both of them um, just have a great presence on the screen.
0: We've talked about Henry Mancini. We've talked about uh, Orson Welles. We didn't talk anything about Russell Meddy.
1: Yeah, we should mention Russell Meddy. I mean, uh, all this fantastic cinematography throughout this film, um, Orson Welles is clearly a director who knows what he wants, but Russell is the DP who actually captured it all. I can only imagine what it's like being an editor. Uh, being somebody working for a studio and having people telling you, okay, re-edit it, cut cut it down to ninety-five minutes. Make yeah. it make it something that the crowds uh can understand. I just can only imagine being put in that position and having to take this film with, with you don't have the director uh you know to work with and you're just basically having to cut it cut it back. You know, I think that they did an admirable admirable job considering what they were under. And even, you know, I you have to give credit to the uh the guy who came in to redirect or to direct some of these new scenes, Um, uh, Harry Keller is his name. And, uh, you know, it it was very standard sort of directing the the one that really stands out is a scene in the lobby in the hotel. It just feels very, very standard fifties Hollywood style. Um, But, um, you know, despite all of that, I think, you know, they did what they were being told and they, uh, they got it done, and, you know, I, I give them credit for that, but I really am grateful to Rick Schmidlin and Walter Merch for coming in and, and fixing this up.
0: The driving scenes, they weren't processing.
1: That's a good a good thing to bring up. This was actually the first film, because we talked about, I, I mentioned this briefly last week in uh, Ace in the Hole, but this is the first film, uh, to my knowledge, that they actually film a driving scene where the camera is mounted essentially on the front of the car and the car is driving and you've got it twice. Once with uh grandy as he's pursuing, uh, as he's following, well, he thinks he's following Vargas and his wife, but I think at that time he's following Menzies who's driving Susie to the hotel. Right. And you've got him driving down the, the roads and then you've got a great shot of Vargas when he's uh, driving with Schwartz and they're driving down the street talking about the case. And, yeah, I mean, really, what they did there, because they couldn't figure out how to do it. They didn't want to tow the car. Orson said, yeah, they can, the actors can do it. And so they mounted the camera. Charlton Heston started the camera up. Schwartz hit the audio stuff. And uh, there's conflicting reports as to whether the sound man was actually in the trunk or not. As far as recording from the trunk, I don't quite know. But, you know, uh, I mean, really, Charlton Heston started the camera, said, uh, action drove filmed the scene at the end of the scene orson said how was it and you know charles was like good but i want to do another take and and so (laughs) so yeah this was really the first time where you could get that and it's so great looking when you watch that scene it really it's so much different than watching a process shot
0: it's the wind
1: it's the wind. it's It's the wind in their
0: hair it's the way
1: their voices it's little vibrations it's everything. yeah yeah
0: yeah i totally agree i feel good
1: yeah, I, I think this is good. I think this was a, a good representation uh, to kind of end on. We did a good, a good uh, broad stroke look at the world of film noir um, in the window from forty four to fifty eight, kind of covering all the uh, a variety of the films. And I think that there's a lot of good stuff in all these films. I think this one it doesn't have all the same noir elements that the other ones do, but it's got this really interesting psychology going on and this exploration of evil and this dark side. And it's very, you can see where cop characters like, uh, like, uh, uh, Mackie from the shield come from, right?
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh,
1: It's the same sort of mentality of, of the, the ends justify the means. And I think that, um, uh the the thematic idea of of you know doing what's right and and uh you know does the end just justify the means um comes through really well in this story and it just it makes for a really engrossing uh a tale to watch and I, I have a great time watching it. It's got great noir elements and it's a fun one to end on.
0: Oh, I think so, too. And I think, you know, it, it also makes me think of, you know, you bring up the shield, uh, shield, I think, uh, you know, I, I'm talking about True Detective, it's it, very, very similar kind of vibe to these and justifies the means. And it turns out, you know, the way they play with those characters, it's, um, it, it ends up being sort of a a different tone, but um, but you really get the sense that that the dirty cop vibe comes from here. And, and this isn't even the f- it, clearly not the first time we've we've seen a story of a dirty cop, but this is the this is the one that sort of defines the dirty cop a- a in the context of civic power. And I think that ends up being a really interesting story. Um, and of course, played by such a, such an incredible, powerful actor, Orson Welles. What a great way to end. Um,
1: and put in a border <sighs> town, which I think is an interesting. Place to have this set where you've got already, as I think Vargas says at one point to Susie, you know the the border town always brings out the worst in a country. So you're already kind of getting this sense of this this dirty, dingy world.
0: How did it do though? I mean, it wasn't uh, that well received critically at the time, was it? Or not? I should say critically, but popularly.
1: Well, like I said, it was diminished to be the bottom of a of a of a B. Uh, it was the B movie of a of the roster. And because of that, it just didn't get a lot of uh, marketing. And nobody, you know, it didn't get the word out there. Unfortunately, Universal didn't know what it had. Um, The budget on it was $829,000 adjusted to today's dollars. That's about $6.7 million. And it ended up making what did it make? I mean it did okay for itself domestically it grossed 2.2 million adjusted is that 18.1 million. So, you know, uh, and from what I could tell this isn't taking any of the 1998 re-release into account. So, all told, it ended up making an adjusted profit per finished minute of about $120,000. So, you know, it wasn't it wasn't a, a failure, you know, they they still made money on it. And mm-hmm. Universal was able to, you know, keep it as one of their uh, catalog to go to for years before the re-release uh, brought it even more money.
0: Where does this stack up for you, you know, in the scope of the noir that we've talked about?
1: Uh, that's a good question. I, I I love this film. I really uh, have always just found it just a fascinating film to watch. Um, I may actually still have this up on the top like it's it's way up there with uh ace in the hole and double indemnity it might be my favorite of the bunch
0: yeah i'm i'm worried that it is for me too and i made an awful big deal uh, <laughs> <laughs> last time <laughs> so uh well, well it's, uh, not not uh ace in the hole but of uh out of the past right right well what do you think? Let's, Shall we rank it? Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel and you can see how our stack rankings line up with your stack rankings. Join and friend and like us and uh, and then see. Look, take a look at our our golden ticket list. The golden list of our top 100 very, very favoriteest movies ever.
1: All right. Touch of Evil or Hot Fuzz.
0: <laughs> well, that is a tonal shift. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yes, Flickchart loves to throw tonal shifts our way. Awesome. <laughs> I'm going to go
0: with uh, Touch of Evil on this one. Yeah,
1: so am I. Touch of Evil or Sleepless in Seattle?
0: I'm also going to go with Touch of Evil on this one. So am I.
1: Touch of Evil. Oh, here you go. Or Ace in the Hole. (laughs) I'm going to go with Touch of Evil on this one. I am going to join you in that. Touch of Evil or Brazil? Wow.
0: Are you ready? Are you ready for this? Uh, You go first. (laughs) Touch of Evil.
1: Uh, i uh, boy
0: i mean now don't don't push me too hard because i could fall the other way really easily
1: i know i i i really uh it's brazil man it's brazil <laughs> i i mean i would go brazil but it is my heavily favorite. heavily you know
0: it, if it's your favorite film, you got to stand up to that, man. It, Don't it, let me push you around.
1: You know, I know, but I mean, it's my favorite film. But right now, it's what like number number ten or eleven on our list. I mean, there's, uh, yeah. you know, I love it. Um, yeah, I, I, I just feel like I'm going to go with Brazil.
0: I just like you twisting in the wind. On I know, this one a little I bit. Know. it is tough. Uh, I, okay, I'll g- I'm gonna get. I'll give you Brazil. All right, it makes me a little sad. I know, me too. It does actually make the, I, me a little sad. I yeah. Should I maybe should I push harder on this one for you? Would I be doing you a favor if I rock paper scissored it to kind of let you off the hook so you could know that it was actually
1: fate? You know, that made
0: this decision for you.
1: I I actually think I'm going to go touch of evil. The more I think about it. <laughs> <laughs> see this is it's amazing this is like your it's it's like a new rochambeau for you you found this way where it's like just talking about it twisted me around
0: i can see into your soul Uh, man
1: what happened there what happened Yeah, i don't know i'm just thinking about the incredible cinematography I'm, i'm thinking about just the this the everything about it i know they both have their issues and i know brazil in my heart is still my favorite film but I feel like I need to give it to Touch of Evil because I feel like it's 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 uh, just a stunning thing to look at.
0: Well, I do too. And the, the reason I think that is because when I compare these two films, I think Brazil owes an awful lot of debt to Touch of Evil.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good way of looking at it. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> that was awesome. Oh, man. Touch of Evil or Inception.
0: Oh, gee, many... Touch of evil.
1: Yeah. Same by the same. I'm doing touch of evil. Logic. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. We're shooting up there. Touch of evil or seven.
0: No, I'm not saying this one's going to be easy at all. (laughs) I'm already I feel it in my gut.
1: Yeah. I feel like I'm I'm leaning towards seven on this one. Why? Why? Make
0: make the case.
1: Uh, the, both of these films, I've I had incredible theatrical experiences with. Touch of Evil, and then in the re release, I saw it at the Castro Theater in San Francisco. Just an incredible crowd to watch it with, and what incredible vibe to walk out of that theater just having lived that uh, retelling of that story. Seven, when that came out, it blew my mind. David Fincher as a force of filmmaking took a genre and did things with it and uh, made a film that uh, kind of rocked me and all the way through to the reveal of the head in the box, um, even to the way that the credits played at the end. um, I think that he took a genre um, and made it his own and made it an incredibly strong film. They both did.
0: Yeah. All right. All right. I sort of feel like my logic fails because – I'm I'm also going to do seven, uh, but I feel like the same thing could be said is, that I think seven owes a a, a debt of gratitude to uh, Touch of Evil.
1: Oh, I agree. I definitely agree.
0: And if and and so, I, but what I, I'm, the I'm thing- not saying is explicitly that I think David Fincher just outwells Wells. <laughs> That's
1: what I'm not saying. I think for me, I think it's that they they took it to a level where you had a head in the box. And that—that that
0: was <laughs> in the box. that was
1: that was a reveal that I just was not yeah. expecting, and that was—I think that for me is what uh, really pushes it to seven.
0: Absolutely. Okay, I'll give you. I'll give you a head in the box.
1: Give me a head in the box. Uh, Touch of evil or Requiem for a Dream. Touch of evil. I, I tend to agree. I think I'm going to do that. All right. Pete, we're at number five we have a new number five
0: <laughs> I kind of felt that going into this one I was kind of play, I played my cards a little bit close to my chest but I knew going into tonight that we were gonna crack the top five that was what I was thinking you did huh I did and we did I was gonna be really disappointed if I if uh, about Brazil but I was gonna let that go <laughs> I feel like fate intervened
1: <sighs> oh that was a tough one for me man that was really no. tough it was really I feel really it really tough
0: just think about this maybe we get orson wells on our next shirt
1: <laughs> well that's true that is kind of exciting
0: <laughs> uh we are changing it up now uh we've finished our 2015 film noir series and next week we start something brand new and i will say speaking of tonal shifts uh <laughs> this will be a tonal shift
1: it will be a tonal shift. We are going to be hopping into the driver's seat and taking a trip out on the road with none other than Mad Max. We're going to we're going to do the whole series. In fact, we're going to be ending it with Fury Road uh, right after it opens. So I'm very much looking forward to this series.
0: Me too. Oh, I can't wait. I it's it's the you know we get Mad Max the original, and then it then it then it goes up and then it goes way down. But I feel like it goes way down as, like, the darkness before the dawn <laughs> in our Mad Max narrative when we get
1: Fury Road. Oh, yes. I'm so excited for that. Film. I am, too. Cannot wait. It's gonna be
0: awesome. I cannot wait to talk about these. So that's what we're doing uh, next week. And uh,
1: until then, uh, I'm going to go to bed. All right. I'm going to go turn on the old pianola.
0: This comes in from uh, Anne, mystery lover. Gives it a one star. She says it's an unfortunate movie. Of course, the format that she watched on was VHS tape in 2002. So I don't know. Maybe it was the <laughs> Maybe it was the format. This was one of the worst movies I've ever watched. The acting, directing, cinematography, and script were just bad. I got the impression the actors were trying to be the worst they could be. The video went into the wastebasket as soon as it was over. Mm. She actually threw it away. It was a protest trashing.
1: Well, I guess, is that better than than gifting it? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know.
0: Yeah, you know, I'll bet she actually probably gives uh, fantastic gifts. Yeah, she Anne.
1: probably does. I'd rather get a gift from Anne who throws I... this in the trash than from, was it Oreo cookie lover?
0: <laughs> yeah. Mystery lover is a better gift giver than Oreo cookie lover. Yeah. Take that. Good to know.
1: Well, mine How is mine is also a 1 star by Holly. Who says I pretty much hated everything about this movie. Yep. I hated it. I did watch the entire movie, but I pretty much hated it. I could say I didn't like it, and I really didn't, but mostly, I really hated it. After hearing all the acclaim, I sure was amazed. I missed what many others perceive as brilliance. All I saw was ugly in every way. There is not one good thing I can salvage from seeing this movie. There are not many movies I can say that deserve only one star. This is one of them that does. Ouch.
0: That's horrible
1: yeah she's she really hated it as she as she clearly tells us did she give it as a gift though
0: <laughs> i've been podcasting since 2006 in that time i've tried countless hosting platforms but in august 2022 we switched to transistor to power all of our shows here at true story fm And it's been a game changer.
1: I love The Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor.
0: With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly.